I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Anjanette Delgado, Yadira Peralta and Mia Leonin, I want to welcome you to The Literary Life as we're celebrating today uh, this brand new anthology that was edited by Anjanette. And I see it in many ways as a breakthrough anthology. I haven't seen very many anthologies like it, if any anthologies like it. It's called Home in Florida, Latinx Writers and the Literature of Uprootedness. So all of you, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you so much. You're so happy to be here and so excited. Thank you. Um, you know, and Jeanette, as the editor, I mean, there are a few things that, um, that immediately pop out for me. You know, as someone who's been a lifelong Floridian, a lifelong South Floridian, who doesn't fall into the category of the folks that you have included here, but yet my whole life I've been extremely interested in all of these topics. So what I'd like you to do a little bit, if you can, is explain and talk a little bit about how this book came to be and why you felt the need for it. Oh, absolutely. Um, the, the idea really came from a, a university, uh, University of Florida Press, Stephanie Hunter. And it was just a, an idea in its infancy. She couldn't find an anthology that grouped Latinx writers in the state. And she said, well, you know, we'll publish it. But 
Latinx is not a category. It's not an angle. It's not a, it's not a message. Um, and so we, I think we, we thought for quite a bit, we researched and um, it was a while before I could figure out okay, what unites us and not only what unites us as Latinx people, but what unites us to you, what unites us to, to the rest of the state. Um, and it was uprootedness. One of, one of the things that I say in my intro is that Florida is full of uprooted people and they're not all Latinx and they're not all from other countries. We come here uprooted from other areas of our life. We come here uprooted by health, by climate change, by changes in our lives. And we just sort of end up here and end up staying here. Um, I, I can't tell you, Mitchell, and I'm sure you've had this, all the people who tell me, oh, I wasn't supposed to stay here. I was just passing through and it's been 30 years or, four, or however many, right? And so that was one of the things. And the other thing, which is a shout out is there are people like you who make it possible for us to stay. There are, there are people who say, I don't want everything the same. I don't want to live in the 50s of milkshakes and everybody knows your name. I want change. I want, you know, I want progress. I want cultural vibrancy. And those are the people that make it, um, make it home for us. So I think that that's where, that's where that came from. And then the uprootedness angle or the word really, which you don't hear as much in English, came from Reynaldo Arenas, who, who said it in, a, in an interview with The New Yorker, this is what I want to do. Had he lived, this is what I want to create a literature of uprootedness because I think that's going to be the thing in the world. That's going to be, that's going to be the constant. And I think he was right. And I'd like to know from each of you um, just what the definition, what your definition is of Latinx and particularly how Latinx differs from Hispanic. For me, Latinx is those who come from Latin America, North America, Central America, South America, primarily Spanish speaking, but then we have Brazil. And Hispanic is refers to Spain. That's my understanding, but I could maybe I'm wrong. Does anybody want to correct or add? Well, thanks, Mia. I mean, that's a, that that's a very granular, interesting you know, description. And, and, and maybe Adira has something to add to that. Yeah, I think I'll add a little bit to it in the sense that I, I think Latinx is primarily based on uh, uh, Mia's definition. I do think that it's a very inclusive term. So for example, my father is from the English language speaking uh, side of Honduras. And a lot of countries in Central America and also in the Caribbean, um, South America, have portions of the island where there's uh, English, it's Anglophone. Anglophone. So I think, and, and from my perspective, uh, that is, that's sort of erased from Honduran culture. And I think it's also erased from uh, uh, like Colombian culture, which I, I'm learning right now because I'm doing collaborations with a Colombian writer. Um, so I think it's inclusive of that, um, and as well as just gender inclusive as well. Um, so I think that's that's where the X comes in. Yeah, and um, and, and I have a very passionate view of this topic. And bear with me, Mitchell. I, I would love to know what you think of this. So 
I think that I discard the word Hispanic to describe what we're talking about because you're Hispanic when you're born. If you are born in a Spanish language country, Spanish speaking country, you're considered Hispanic. You can be Hispanic anywhere in the world. You don't have to be in the United States. But Latino, um, even though of course there's the basic, right? Like Mia was saying from the Latin and all of that, for me, it's experiential. It's an experiential definition. When I talk about Latinos and Latinx, I'm talking about people with a, with a common background. That doesn't mean they're all the same, but with a common background of colonization, to be honest, who then are sharing the immigrant experience in the U.S. And for me, it's so important that this definition be experiential because this is why we read French author versus a Russian author, right? The, that background will inform the book and our reading of it and why they got to the thoughts that they got and why they put together these stories and not those others. So for me as a writer, it's very important that experiential side of things. It's not just about, oh, they speak Spanish because a lot of Latinos do not speak Spanish through no fault of their own. Um, it's more about this, this common experiment here in the US. Anywhere else in the world, I'm Puerto Rican. Nobody calls me Latina or Latinx or nothing. I'm just Puerto Rican and, you know, I'm only Latina here. And, and that's important to me. And I think Latinx is a nod to the fact that there are so many people from all of these different countries and all of these different experiences that you've been talking about that have such different stories and that are so unique from one another and lumping them together is so very unfair. And it's a way of putting people in a particular box. And I think one of the beauties of this book is that what you do is you focus on the individual stories and, and how diverse each one of those stories are. Yadira, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, but I don't really know your story. And I don't really know how you've come to make Florida your home. Um, it, it's a complex story and, and I could uh, try to distill it into um, something brief, but basically um, my, my family is from Honduras. My parents met in Honduras, but when they met in the 70s, my father was a Vietnam vet. He had previously uh, emigrated to the U.S. and had volunteered um, to uh, to fight in the Vietnam War and America and became an American citizen, and decided to go back to Honduras because he uh, wasn't sure if the U.S. was his home anymore. And uh, and they eventually once once I came along and my brother and sister came along. Uh, they decided to come back to Miami, to the U.S., uh, so he, he would be closer to uh, the VA hospital. And, um, and so I, you know, I was six years old when we got here, and um, it, was, it was traumatic for me because I loved Honduras, and we have a very, very, very large family. To this day, a majority of them uh, have stayed. And so it wasn't that I didn't like Miami. It just it was it was just really traumatic uh, being sort of pulled away from them, and then to be in uh, in this place, Miami, that just seemed to me so wild compared to um, to my home. And and I've just 
you know, I've, I've been here most of my life. I went to college in, in New York at Queens College and, and stayed in New York City for a few years and always thought I'm, I'm not staying in Miami um, because when I when I was a young budding writer, it seemed to me that, yes, there were really great places like Books and Books and the Miami Book Fair. But in my mind, anyway, I just romanticized other literary cities like Paris and and San Francisco and New York City and thought I'll, I'll find that community there. And funny enough, when I came back to Miami for grad school, um, which was in about two, I think it was about 2005, I found I found that community here. I mean, we we had a lot of what Books and Books and the Miami Book Fair did in terms of laying the foundation for writers to come together and lovers of books to come together that that new branches or layers, however you want to um, visualize that, just started coming along. So, um, you know, the work that, that um, University of Miami uh, MFA program did and FIU MFA program did in terms of uh, in terms of helping to develop writers and, uh, you know, at FIU, uh, you know, Scott Cunningham was a classmate and the work he did with Oh Miami, um, we got to a place where I, I said, you know what, I think I'm going to make Miami my home. I'm going to finally, after so many years, accept that this is the place that I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm at Mango Publishing, which is uh, one of the fastest growing independent publishers in the country and it's right here in Miami. And when I came to to meet Chris McKenney, who's the founder and CEO of Mango Publishing, I had no idea that they were here. And it just rocked my world that Miami had a publisher. So um, so it, I mean, we continue to, to grow that. Uh, and when I mean we, I mean, Miami continues to just grow this like um, literary <laughs> tradition. Could you read your wonderful, a little bit from your wonderful piece in home in Florida? Would you do that? Yes, thank you. And so this is from a longer piece uh, called From Las Colinas to Carol City and Back, Variations on a Theme of Acculturation. It was Mama's mission to sell moving to America to us kids. Everything would be cleaner, faster, larger, the only part of it that sounded remotely interesting to me was the lie, or my misunderstanding, that the elementary school had a cafe. I imagined something very European, delicate pastries and complicated cakes behind glass, children with espressos in little white cups congregating at tables discussing the latest dilemmas like which El Chavo del Ocho character was least likable, a seductive scene worthy of a picture book. A grown woman in a yellow dress, barefoot, on a yellow tiled porch, sometimes just standing, sometimes lying in a hammock all day. In the distance, Pico Bonito covered in her majestic greenery, her upper reaches sometimes obscured by clouds. Time is elastic. We could do this forever. I submerge completely in this act of wondering. What hides in the cloud forest that is stranger than my mind? And Mia. You know, we've known each other for so long. I mean, I think you even worked with us at Books and Books for a little while. So, so tell me a little bit about your story as well. Well, my, yes, I worked at the original 
books and books when I was a graduate student. Believe it or not, this is our 40th anniversary. And that original store had been our original store for about 20 of the 40 years. So it's a long time. Yes. In fact, my first book, Braid, I did my reading at that store. So I have fond memories of the store. Um, So my father came from Cuba in 1963 and met my mother in Louisville, Kentucky, where he was, he was a doctor in Cuba and he went to Louisville, Kentucky to do his residency so he could practice medicine in the US. And my mother was a nurse. So doctor, nurse, that's how they met. And they did not end up getting married or having a relationship. And so I grew up with my mom, raised by a Southern lady in the Midwest. She moved to Missouri to raise me. And my patriarchal lineage was always a mystery to me until one day when I was 16, she told me, your your father's a Cuban man and he lives in Miami, I think. And so even though I was just finding out that part of my identity, I often felt a not belonging and an uprootedness in, in Missouri. And so I ended up coming to Miami. I spoke French at the time because I'd studied it as an undergrad and I came to Miami and volunteered for the Haitian American organization on 8th street and I think 17th. And I volunteered for Catholic charities translating for Haitian immigrants and it was and I got my foot in the door in Miami I met my father I visited with him he was in his 70s at that point and I concluded when I went back to Missouri that I probably wasn't going to have the relationship I'd always wanted that one wants with a father but that I could have a relationship with my own heritage with my own roots and i I called the University of Miami with my little Missouri accent and said, do y'all have one of those MFA programs? And they said, well, as a matter of fact, we're starting one this year. And John Balaban had been hired to start the creative writing program in 1993 at the University of Miami. I applied and I got a scholarship to go on a Michener fellowship and I came to Miami. And one of the first things I realized about Miami is that no one really belonged and therefore I belonged. And that began what I call the longest marriage of my life is with Miami. Interestingly, my mom came here for the last several years of her life and lived with us. And her name was Norma Jewel, Norma Jewel. And here she became Norma. Everybody called her Jewel, but here she became Norma and she lived with me and my daughter's father, Carlos, who helped me take care of her. And she became a Miamian herself, interestingly enough, in her own way. She found a church, she found friends and, and she, you know, embraced Miami and Miami embraced her. Would you read your piece too? That would be great. I know it's I, I know it's poetry too, but oh, actually, I'm going to read a little bit from an essay. Oh, okay, that, cool. That's in the book, and it's called "How to Name a City," and it's about coming me coming to Miami, 
And it starts with a quote by Barack Obama, where he said, Miami is a profoundly American city, a place that reminds us that ideals matter more than the color of our skin or the circumstances of our birth. You waver in the face of the word journey. This could mean more loss, but all the not belonging has metabolized into longing, so you walk. You walk past the clump of fried dough huddled on the roof of your mouth, past the fallen arch in your right foot and the hyperextended elbow that arches when you point. You walk past the dead poet's grave and the gardener who tends it. You nod in agreement when the gardener smiles and shakes his head no at your request for directions. You walk past an old woman wrapping bruised mangoes in newspapers and past ancient onion-skinned women who haul small houses and big-boned grandkids on their backs. You walk as far as you can and farther still. Cars race by, exhaust scorches your shins. Miniature flags from 13 different islands wave at you from rearview mirrors. Wherever you stand, a new accent washes up from a far shore. Castilian, Creole, Patois, and Portuñol lap at your ankles. In this city, anyone claiming to be a native is laughed at or promptly interrogated. People put a hand on a stranger's shoulder. He thinks he's from here, they chuckle, offering a strong shot of sweet coffee in, tiny, in a tiny medicinal cup. The writing in this anthology is so brilliant. Anja, you've done such an amazing job you know, pulling this all out and pulling this all together. So tell us your story, Anjanette. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll tell you in bullet points. I'm still reeling from the reading of um, Yadira's and, and Mia's. Um, and it was how I spent the whole time that I was editing this, just between crying and laughing. Um, I lived in Puerto Rico. I was a single mom, very young. I was maybe 23 or 24. And I got home one day and I believed there was a man inside a bureau drawer. <laughs> I, I truly believed that I had been working in news and being exposed to all the sexual violence that happened in the early 90s in the island and that continues today to the point that it's been declared a, a national emergency in the island. And I said, I have to go. I can't, can't be here. I'm walking into my house and thinking I'm going to find somebody ready to attack me. Um, inside a bureau drawer. Um, so I talked to people and I, I ended up finding a job at CNN and I moved to Atlanta and I lived there for a year and just felt so, so lost there. It was a beautiful city. And I remember people talking about this city is so buttoned up. It's a business city. It's buttoned up. And I came to hate that phrase, this buttoned up felt like the opposite thing to home for me. Just this weird straightness, this weird order to everything. And so when I got an offer to come here and work for NBC, I took it, but it was right after Hurricane Andrew. And my first night here, I, I drove here in a, with my children in a, in a station wagon, a 1987 station wagon. And the only place where there was a place to stay was the Clay Hotel. And if you know the Clay Hotel, 
So I got put into a room with three other women who came in and out all night. I don't know what they were doing, but they were just in and out while we were sleeping. And it was, it was an experience. And after that, I just, you know, everything, everybody was so angry after Andrew. So, so harangued, right? They had just been through so much. And I thought that was the city. And I was, I need to leave. This is not what I thought. I don't feel at home here. It took a while. I had the same experience of finding books and books and saying, okay, well, when I'm feeling terrible, I can come and hang out here and it won't be so bad. And just trying to, trying to figure it out. And it wasn't until after 9-11 that I said, oh my God, I'm home. I'm, I'm here now and this is where I'm going to stay. And, and I'm actually lucky to be here and to have a different perspective than I might have in other areas of the U.S. That's how my story began. And I will admit that there are days when I feel all the things from the beginning. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship with all of Florida, right? Um, not just with Miami. There are days when I really, really hate it, Mitchell. I really, really hate it. Um, you know, when I go past a uh, tropical park and see signs that just don't speak to anybody's humanity, I get angry all over again and want to leave. And then the next day, you know, I'll be at the Miami book fair and hear a wonderful reading and I'll say, no, no, I'm home. I'm, I'm staying. So, you know, well, no, I think, I think the love hate relationship that you're discussing is something that many of us who are in South Florida always feel, I mean, I'm, I was born here, um, but I never felt a part of here. And going way, way back, that love-hate relationship caused me to leave. And then I came back. And I can honestly say it's people like you, writers like you, people who are thoughtful, people who care about things, uh, about putting down roots that have made it possible for me to stay. Uh, I was about to leave. And it really wasn't until we opened Books and Books that all of a sudden I started meeting you guys. And I started meeting writers. I started meeting people who were simpatico. And I thought, God, you know, so in essence, I constructed my own reality. <laughs> you know, in a sense, I'm living in my own reality, which is what we all do when we live in South Florida. You know, we're talking about home in Florida, and this is the Ronaldo Arenas part of it. What the three of you don't necessarily represent is the idea of exile. And so how does exile differ from your own experience. In other words, when you don't choose to come here or when someone or when you don't have the choice to come here or stay, when you're forced to leave as Ronaldo was forced to leave. Talk a little bit about the difference of all of that. Well, I, I, I do wanna say that um, there was a really important reason that Reynaldo had to be in the book. And one day you and I will have coffee at Books and Books and I'll tell you what it took to get the rights to, to the story that's in the book, but also Guillermo Rosales, who had a similar experience. And they were, they, both of them notoriously did not like Miami. They couldn't make this their home for in different ways. Neither of them um, ended up here. Um, but to me, it was important to capture those, you know, not just, not just us and, and our stories, but uprootedness is uprootedness and being Latinx is a lot of things. And it's not just a one day thing. Like you were saying, it's a journey and you'll feel different. 
And I wanted people to see how, how, how different it was, how different people had gotten here and how they ended up making this home because the stories are incredible, right? Guess, Even your own story. I guess what I'm talking about is the uprootedness that is an exile uprootedness as right. opposed to another kind of uprootedness. Yes. How, how, does, how, how did you find in reading the different stories, reading the stories of exiles, what are some of the differences uh, that you found? Incredibly enough, they're more similar than they are. Because what we sometimes don't realize is that even when people choose leaving a country, I, I don't really know that we really choose, right? Like people could say, well, Angela, you're a citizen. You chose to come. Nobody forced you to come. My sanity forced me to come. I, I didn't feel when I first got here that I'd come here of my own volition. And I don't, I don't want to minimize the exile, the situation of an exile when there's violence, when people come for hunger, for things like that. I think it's just a more compact uh, experience, right? They, you'll experience it in a, in a stronger way, but in a way we're all exiles. We, we didn't say, oh, let me just you know, uproot myself and just start over somewhere else to begin with and learn another language and learn another way of being and learn where everything is and just kind of set myself back a decade or two. I don't, I don't think we do, even when we supposedly choose to come. And I found that there were so many similarities in how people came um, in terms of how they felt. They felt uprooted, they felt yanked, they felt pulled. They felt like something was taken from them in, in most of the cases. And I remember Marielle very clearly. And two years later, we opened the bookstore. And I remember being introduced to this young poet who spoke, uh, and writer, who spoke no English. And it was Renato Arenas. And I, there was a group that was, there was a group at, at the time it was led by Marcia Morgado, if you knew her at all, and yeah. some others who were highlighting the writers from the Marielle experience. And Ronaldo was one of the key writers. I helped set up a few events at some of the libraries around town. And I was astonished by how few, how he was not truly accepted, even by the exile community that had been here for years and years beforehand. And so we would have these events at some of the libraries and not a lot of people would come. And, um, and I was only very sad that I couldn't commute because I don't speak Spanish. I'm a failure of the public school system here, but I'm gonna try to learn it. I know I am, but I was always very saddened that I couldn't really communicate with him because he just seemed so, so interesting. But there was a sadness about him and a complete sadness about him that you could tell that he was felt so dislocated. And certainly in Cuba, he was dislocated at the same time. He was forced to leave because of, of the repression that he was feeling. Um, in the piece in the book, actually, you will see his view of Miami and his view of the art and literature world. It's a farce. The story that's in the, that's in the book is called The Glass Tower. And it's a marvel of, you can really feel how, how much of an outsider he felt and how he was looking for something genuine and he felt like it, it wasn't there. Something right. beyond poses, right? He couldn't, he couldn't get to it. And, and, and Yadira Mia, I mean, have you have any thoughts on, on this about 
the idea of exile versus exile as a as a type of a broodedness. I know I've heard so many stories from friends and from friends' parents and grandparents, and um, and it seems like just such a traumatic experience. Um, I I can empathize in the smallest way possible in the sense that I. Um, on my end, I didn't choose to come. I was a child, so my, my parents made that decision. And I have to be honest with you, it took me a really, really long time to, to feel at home, in not just in, in Florida, but in the United States. And, um, and for a while, I was kind of a brat, and, and I blamed my parents. And I, and, I, and I write about this a lot now, where I just created this alternate uh, universe version of me and what I would have been like in my life would have been like if I had been able to to stay, um, but I I cannot truly speak to the to the exile experience to be honest. What I've observed in Miami, and one of one of the things that's most informed it is for many years I wrote about um, Spanish language theater and which is comprised of different layers of exiles from the '60s and Mariel and the the dissonance that's created through like intergenerational trauma and, and that the political economic repression that sends people from their countries, it all kind of lands here in Miami, elsewhere of course too, but it's landed here in Miami. And so there are those who need freedom more than they need to be right. And there are those who need to be right because it's the only way they can feel free. And we have all that in one hot mess here <laughs> in, in, on our streets and in our boardrooms and everywhere. Um, that's what I've observed. We are not a monolithic community. We now see people coming from Venezuela, Nicaragua, you know, leaving other you know, other fascist countries, which have dictatorial leaders that are forcing people to leave in order to be able to create, you know, particularly from a writer's perspective, to be able to create and to feel the freedom of being able to create. There are certain strains in this country that if we're not careful, uh, we will turn into the next Venezuela or the next Nicaragua or the next Cuba. We have to be careful that there are certain kind of authoritarian uh, tendencies that we have here and that people shouldn't just blindly, you know, feel like this is, you know, a kind of, um, kind of a free space without any responsibility. That's, that's, I think, what, you know, one of the roles that we have as people who understand, you know, have a greater insight into what the Latinx community is um, and that isn't monolithic. So somehow we have to wrestle back. And as writers, I think you guys need to wrestle back the narrative about all of that. And you've done a great job in this book, Home in Florida. And, and Anja, would you read a little bit from it as well? So we got a flavor of I will, I will. We might draw two points, one located at the start on the left side of what will be an uneven line holds your recently uprooted, the soon to returns, the just arrived, the what have I done. 
souls with turmoil tattooed in indigo in the whites of their eyes, their gaze always lost, their eyelids heavy from having to look inward to find what they never imagined they'd miss this much. If they are writers, they do not write, not now. They first need a job, a physical address, a first paycheck with which to send money back home, not now. Why write? Nobody knows them here. Who would translate and publish them? It's too soon. They've had no time to create community. They are surviving, and even those rules, they are still learning. The other dot goes on the opposite end of the spectrum, the right side, where you have the people you think of when you hear the term Latinx. Many are second generation. The rest have been here long enough. They may or may not speak Spanish. They have jobs and speak English better than most, and in the worst of cases, certainly enough to get by. They have made a choice in their hearts this time, or their parents made it for them before they were born. If they are writers, you'll have heard about their writing, not just because they are widely published and reviewed, recognized as is the case with the majority of the less recent emigres in this book, but because they've been here long enough to have found their people, other writers. They have a voice and any sadness has been tempered, processed, written, and given a drawer, sometimes close to the front door, sometimes in the most hidden of bedrooms. Between the two ends of this spectrum I've tried to describe for you are lines jaggedly connected, a zigzag of them teeming with stars, each in a unique spot on the road to belonging and shifting daily in one direction or the other. I'm blown away by the diversity of the, of the writers in this anthology. You have everyone from, you know, Alex Segura, who's basically a mystery writer, to, to Richard Blanco, the great poet, Anna Menendez, to Janine. I mean, I could go on and on and on. These are, these are some of my favorite writers writing in any genre. And you've been able to kind of uh, wrangle them all into this one book. And I've always grappled with this myself when I talk to other people about Miami. Is Miami really, or South Florida, really an American city? Absolutely. It absolutely is. It's just, I think we've forgotten that side of being American, right? When you were talking earlier about, you know, seeing the, the thing that we as, as writers need to wrestle back in terms of the narrative, part of it is empathy, Part of it that is understanding that democracy is not just when you like it, right? It's not just when the decision made by the majority, you agree with it, then you follow the rules. What makes it work is that we follow the rules, the rule of the majority, right? Um, and not, not in terms of the electoral college for sure, but I'm saying in, in the general term in representation, right? We, we abide by it. We follow the rules, we say, okay, that's what was decided, that's what's being done, this is the system, and I'm gonna do the best within it. And I think that that's the thing that gets away from us. I don't know those people, I don't know, I don't understand their freaking coffee with all that sugar, therefore, I'm gonna shut them out, right? But, but that's what enriches us. I, I don't know if it's fear or empathy, I was actually going to ask you that. What, what is the thing that has made, that makes me feel sometimes like, where am I living? Just like you said, right? What, what is, is it empathy? Is it civics, another failure of the public system? You know, have we, have we, did we stop teaching civics and all went to hell? I don't know. What do you think, Mitchell? 
Well, I, I've always felt, I'll answer my own question, that Miami is the most American city, you know, I mean, in many ways. And it's a city, it's, it's what every city ought to, ought to aspire to, which is to recognize and celebrate the diversity that's in that city. And as much as we don't do that here, that's to our detriment. Um, that's to our that's how we fail when we don't. And the struggle in Miami is that for as long as I can remember, it, there was that tension between old Miami or people who perceive themselves as old Miami and the new influx of people who came to move here from countries all over and who spoke different languages. And I think those of us who understand how that makes a very, very rich, rich uh, uh, stew is, you know, it, it makes it a much more interesting place to live. The battle between like capitalist production and democracy, which is an ongoing like conversation that neither, you know, it's a system of checks and balances that have to be in place, but that create great like tension and 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 often strife. I feel that we've been living in that for a very long time in Miami. And now when I'm watching the news, I see the rest of the country experiencing this dissonance over like vaccines, for example, and over realizing, oh wait, my neighbors really don't think like I do about X topic. And so in that sense, I agree with you and Barack Obama, who says Miami is a profoundly American city. You know, you brought up some of the challenges that, that we're facing, and I think um, economic disparity is one of them. I'm seeing a lot of gentrification in my neighborhood. Um, you know, we, have, we also have climate change uh, that, that we have to face. And so my, my biggest hope is that um, the diver the t really the kind of diversity that we have in South Florida like, I'm a believer that diversity feeds innovation if we allow it to happen. So I'm I'm really hoping that while we're vulnerable to some of these things, that we can also be the place that helps to answer some of those uh, challenges. Absolutely, and also, you know, we need to allow we need to we need to have our voices be very strong when we're talking about it, writing about it. And we need to expect, we need to, we, we have to expect more out of our leadership here so that they really are representing our issues and not being, um, you know, you know, not distorting what actually goes on. I actually think uprootedness is very much part of that topic. I think if, I mean, there was one goal, right, which was to just get all this great writing into one tome and to, and to have people sample it and enjoy it and make them feel something. That was my number one goal was that you would read this book and feel and feel and feel. But the other one was, if we all understand that we're all uprooted in some way um, and what and how our stories are the same in, in other ways, then maybe we can get to that next step of talking about our issues and our problems and saving that thread, that fabric that unites us all and makes us better as a city, as a state, as a country, right? As a human race, even. I, I found myself um, learning things about humans from these stories. And even though I know the people, just like you said at the beginning, I didn't know their stories. 
And now I do. And now I, I know what bothers them and what makes them afraid and what makes them feel at home and what makes them love. And I just felt myself becoming more and more human as the months went by. And I had the privilege really to, to put all these together and read them before anyone else that I feel incredibly lucky to have done this. I recommend it, Mitchell. The next anthology I want to read is one edited by you because that will be something. I don't know about that, but that but will be something. I have to say, Angela, what you really did is you really, you really succeeded. And you know, I've been thinking a lot recently about empathy and kindness. And I think those are two qualities that um that 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 we need to lift up as much as possible. And one way of doing that, almost the only way of doing that, is to learn the stories of others. And uh, with that, with home in Florida, you have told these stories through other voices. Some of the best writers of our generation writing right now. Uh, and the, this book is nothing if it's not uh, an empathy machine, <laughs> which will, which I think um, will resonate far beyond the state of Florida. I hope. So I want to thank all of you for being on the Literary Life today. Uh, as I said to you earlier, I, I wish we could be together once a month and just talk about all these different things. But I, I want to thank uh, Mia Leonin and Jeanette Delgado and Yadira Peralta for being on The Literary Life. Thank you for having us. It's been great. I've enjoyed every second. Thank you.